Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Welcome back, listeners, for Episode 9 of Plastic Model Mojo. While Dave and I are always separated by about 70 miles, we're in the same lockdown mode as all of our other podcasting friends, and most of you as well. So, tonight we plan on scratching a little deeper into our listener mail and maybe possibly pontificating a bit more in our special segment. So, if we go over our normal target duration, well, who cares? Most of us have plenty of time at the moment anyway. So, uh, let's get on with Episode 9 of Plastic Model Mojo. Good evening, Dave. Evening. Oh, hang on. Evening, Mike. I'm sorry. I was just uh, practicing my didgeridoo. Well, that's a new new talent. <laughs> well, you know, to be honest with you, I was thinking of starting a band, just banjos and didgeridoos. I got a great name for it. Hillbillies Down Under. What do you think? Uh, that might work. <laughs> yeah, well, let's we'll see if we can find some banjo players. I think I heard one last week. Yeah, I think so. So how are you doing? <laughs> well, all things considered, uh, we're doing pretty well. You, you've you survived uh, the corona so far? I've survived the, what are we, like week three now or two or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. S- spring is spring is canceled, you know. Probably, probably the biggest, uh, the biggest disappointment is uh, it screwed up April Fool's. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I had this I had this podcast joke plan that I was gonna say that we had the uh, design and development director for Airfix as our first interview because <laughs> the guys down under and the Canadians have been kind of sparring to see who actually gets that interview first. <laughs> so I thought that might be a good one. That would have been a good one. Uh, I said we're you know we're just trying to get some stuff accomplished around here. Yeah. Since not much else is going on. Yeah, well, it does leave the the sad upside of this whole thing is it does uh, it does leave more time for modeling. Uh, uh, so what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking Buffalo Trace, Kentucky straight Ooh. bourbon whiskey. Neat or over ice? Neat, because I haven't had it in a long time, and I'm... You know, I read a little bit about it after I bought it. I bought it because the price was nice. It's not one I typically pick up. Um, you know, it's in Frankfort, Kentucky, our state capital, and it's just about four miles from from where I work. And I've been on the tour there, but I've I haven't really bought a lot of their product. Uh, it's a ninety proof, so you know, not not too hot. Lower on the rye, not too sweet. And I'm still kind of figuring it out. I've had to go read a couple of reviews and see what other people think, but uh, I'm still working on it. Uh, it's nice. I certainly wouldn't refuse it, but right mm-hmm. now I still prefer the bullet, but you know, you got to learn, you know, you got to, got to look and learn. You never know when you'll find a new one. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And you, what are you working on? Well, I'm working on uh, a new one for me. Uh, Willet Pot Still Bourbon. Uh, Willet uh, Distillery is uh, 
down in Bardstown, although they have their corporate offices here in Louisville. And uh, this is their pots, what they call their pot still bourbon. Uh, it's uh, about 94 proof. Uh, they describe it as having a vanilla lemon cake nose. And I guess I get that a little bit, particularly the vanilla. And maybe there's a hint of citrus. Um uh, it's it's a fine drinking bourbon, very very nice. Uh, the price point is now it's in the pot. It's in the pot still shape bottle, right? Yes, I was going to mention that. Uh, probably one of the reasons I got it was the fact that, uh, like a lot of bourbon distillers these days, they're starting to make efforts to do interesting shaped bottles kind of to, to distinguish themselves, you know, uh, maker's mark way back when started with the red wax dip top. And, uh, now you've got all sorts of shapes and sizes. Uh, but the pot still bottle is a, a low fat bottle bottom with a very long neck. Um, and that's probably like a genie bottle. Yeah. Like a genie bottle. Exactly. Um, that's probably to so be. So if you honest. rub it, does Barbara Eden pop out of it? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's like a twenty-two-year-old Barbara Eden. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> uh, for the for those listeners in uh, who aren't in the United States or who are under forty years of age, go Google "I Dream of Genie." You'll understand. Um, this Woolet's pretty good. Now the the price point is. It's it's a higher shelf bourbon. Uh, the price point is uh, about forty eight forty nine dollars for seven hundred fifty milliliters. Um, it's it's a fine drinking bourbon. Very very nice. Like you said, definitely would not refuse it. Uh, it's one of the better bourbons I've had. So uh, I intend to enjoy it as the show goes on. Sounds good. I've had Willet, and I would agree with you uh, again. Probably the price point keeps me away, but I pick that up, you know, maybe every other year I might get a bottle of that. Yeah. Not very often. No, but it is good. Well, list, listener mail was good uh, last couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, tell us some. Coming in first is uh, Andrew DeBoer. And Andrew comes from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He says, fellas, enjoyed your discussion on Photo Etch. That's one, I guess. <laughs> As a sometimes modeler of one to 350th scale warships, I've found photo etch to be indispensable in, uh, in 1/350th, My favorite glue is extra thin super glue, which wicks into the seam where I want it. And the excess can be absorbed with a Q-tip or corner of a paper towel, leaving it, leaving just what I want, where I want. Now, when I try this, I always end up gluing Q-tip or paper towel to the model. (laughs) Me too. Maybe dipping so the Q-tip know. or the paper towel in a little debonder is is the way to go. <laughs> it gets better though. A friend in our local modeling club built the all etch one one forty fourth scale SR seventy one from Jasmine Models. Now we mentioned Jasmine Models in that podcast, right? Uh, and he used the Bondic pin to assemble it. Stroke of genius, really. The glue is crystal clear and does not cure until you hit it with the UV light. So you can take your time to get the part positioned just so and then fix it in place. 
Hmm. Now, are you, f- are you familiar with the Bondic pen? Yes, I am. Uh, and it's sort UV of an infomercial the... thing, but it's a it, yeah UV cured plastic polymer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, developed by a dentist, I believe. Would not surprise me. Yeah. He also says I routinely lubricate my modeling sessions with a Kentucky product. <laughs> Eagle Rare Bourbon has become scarce around here, so next time I see it, I'm stocking up. So keep up the good work, gents. Um, Eagle Rare actually is, um, but I'll tell you, it's it's a really low rye mash bill, so I'm not the one making it rare. Now it's good, but it's not one one I'm gonna yeah. enjoy. So good luck finding it. Um, yep. The, I don't know how they distribute bourbon, but you know we certainly don't get necessarily the lion's share of anything in 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 state. Yeah, a lot of times, unless you go unless you go and visit the distilleries, you almost always can can find the 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 lines at the distillery if they have a if they have a gift shop. Next is uh, Kelly Spracklin, and Kelly Spracklin comes to us from. New London, Connecticut. It's a long way from here. Yep. Just got into your podcast a few days ago. And as both a bourbon modeling and Kentucky basketball enthusiast, I think I've found the perfect podcast. I too prefer 70 second scale aircraft, but sometimes go in other directions with scale and subjects. I have a Roden Bristol F2B fighter to start, but after all I've heard about Roden, I'm so somewhat nervous to jump in. Maybe a good glass of Woodford Reserve and good music will encourage me to break it out. Thanks for the great podcast and keep up the good work. Um, take your shot. Well, man. I, 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 I sure hope you found the perfect podcast, but I got to admit that uh, Dave is a Louisville Cardinal and I'm a Tennessee volunteer. So hope, hope we're still your perfect podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that may be the two teams that, Kentucky fans hate the most in the world. So hopeful, hopefully uh, he, he's not going to hold that against us. Although for eight years, <laughs> I had an office that looked out over Rupp Arena. I spent eight I years know. staring at that. That's right. We had, <laughs> we had lunch about once a week. I know. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if a glass of Woodford Reserve is going to help with this road and biplane. Uh, you got your work cut out for you there, I think. Uh, but, but I promise. That after, but after three, you won't give a rip either way. <laughs> True enough. True enough. <laughs> ah, next. Kevin Kelly from Euclid, Ohio. Mike, I really liked the first spot in On the Bench. It was a good listen. I assume he's referring to the interview last episode of On the Bench. That was a lot of fun. Yep. Sounded like uh, it. Second, what is your opinion of, on the best 135th scale T34? I have an ICM T3476 and it's going to get built regardless of your recommendation. <laughs> But I hear a lot of posts panning T34 kits and not many recommending one. Yeah. Funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Modelers also are a has, critical bunch. Yes. Has Dave seen the new Tamiya 172nd BF109s? It oh, intrigues yes. me, but I haven't seen one in the wild yet. Oh, yes. Well, yes what do you I think have. of that? Well, go, go for it. Uh, it's a great kit. It's beautiful. It's classic to me uh, um uh for all of my 109 72nd scale 109 opinions i look to a to a modeler out of pittsburgh by the name of barry numeric barry 
is, I don't know if you've ever encountered one of those people who builds just one subject. And now that's not completely true. Barry builds some other stuff a little bit, but he builds 109 after 109 after 109. Every model, every every kit, every manufacturer, every different version. And uh, I hang out on a place called 72nd Scale Aircraft Forum. And I recommend all you 72nd Scale modelers out there, Google it and go. It's a great place to hang out. Barry hangs out there. And Barry posted his build of the Tamiya 109 um, when it came out. So you can go there and take a look at it. It generally, it's a classic to me, a kid. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. Uh, he had a couple of um, reservations with the way they engineered some of the uh, uh, the wheels and landing gear. Um, not not that it was bad, but it was just engineered in a way that that is different than most other manufacturers. I think. To me, it was trying to achieve uh, a, a idiot-free uh, uh, alignment so that the alignment of the, the uh, landing gear and the, the wheels is going to be perfect. Because that's one thing that's, that's hard to do on a 109 kit is get those uh, landing gear struts and, and wheels aligned correctly. But yeah, it's a beautiful kit. Go buy it. You won't be disappointed. You'll have a, a wonderful time building it. Uh, in fact, uh, my opinion right now in 72nd scale, the Tamiya Zeros are the finest model kit I've ever built. Uh, I've built two of them now. I intend to build a whole bunch more of them. Tamiya's quality is just fantastic. Well, back to the T-34s. Uh... Yeah, I want to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> well, he he may not realize that he's asked a guy who remembers when the Tamiya T34 was the only really T34 kit out there. And you had to put in um, plastic uh, uh, plastic card on the underside to block off the, <laughs> the, the see-through. Well, you had to do that with a lot of Tamiya kits, but... Um, yeah. back, back then, people were putting any turret on any hull, and... and before the wall came down, we got all this fresh information about T-34s and the factory derivatives and the production cycles. Um, nobody really knew. So uh, that's where I'm coming from. But if, if I, I don't know if there's a best because the things are so factory dependent on details. If you want, to, if you want a recommendation, I think the earlier Dragon ones, the, the Model 40, there's two versions, a cast and a welded turret of that one, and Model 40 and 41. Those are probably their, from the early Dragon releases, are their better ones. Uh, when you get into the later ones, you got to watch out. At some point, they messed up the driver's position on the front glacis plate. And I don't know how bad it's off, but everybody pans it, and everybody just goes on and on about it. I don't know how much it's off, but that bothers a lot of people. Uh, so that's that's a thing to watch. Uh, there's a, a Zvezda kit now that's actually pretty good, a T3476. You might want to check that one out. Um, your ICM kit, I, I'm not too familiar with it. I'll have to check it out. But T34 kits have come a long way, and really, you really need to look into what 
what T34 you want to model and what factory it came from and then start getting on the forums and trying to figure it out. There's a, there's a T34 interest group on Facebook that I highly recommend that would really help you out with a T34. Um, and to wrap up Kevin Kelly here, he is a police officer in Euclid, Ohio. So a first responder, uh, in all this craziness right now. So hats off to you, sir. And please stay safe. Amen. Next we have Joel Sherwood from Irwin, Tennessee. He's got a tool question. Do you guys ever use a Dremel or other type of high-speed rotary tool? I'm a fan of Plasmo on YouTube, and he uses one pretty frequently. I finally worked up the nerve to try one and and will say that it takes a pretty steady hand and maybe a sip or two of modeling fluid to find the courage to send plastic flying. Thank you. Keep up the awesome work. Now, this is interesting. Uh <laughs> I like Plasmo too. He's fearless and I wish I was fearless sometimes. And, uh, you know, after I see one of his videos where he's got the razor saw out or the rotary tool, I'm always looking at his fingers in the next episode to see if there's any stitches or, uh, he's actually got them all still <laughs> <laughs> because wow. I, you know, he's not clamping anything down. He's just going to town and cutting stuff. So, yeah. um, personally I use, uh, a motor tool or rotary tool very limitedly. Uh, I don't use it a whole lot. I, I, I told him via email that currently I don't have one. Um, I had a, a Dremel lithium ion, one of their early ones and the battery crapped out and I've just never replaced it yet because I don't really have a need to. Uh, what about you? Well, uh, I have, uh, I had a Dremel tool that believe it or not, I lost uh, I'm there still, <laughs> still at a loss to explain that. I lent it to somebody and I... Well, you moved. It. Yes, that's true too. Uh, so I bought a Chinese knockoff uh, off of uh, uh, off of uh, Amazon. Uh, I, I, I have used a Dremel tool occasionally. Um, I'll tell you the, the thing that I, I used it the most for was actually with a drywall bit to cut drywall, um, a, a non-modeling use. But I've used it a few times uh, uh, to uh, in re- regard to cutting out a, a hatch or a panel or something like that. Um, uh, I've used the cutting wheel once or twice, uh, like to cut a, a piece of brass tube or, or something. But... Uh, in general, it's not my. It's not something that I grab every day. Of course, there are a lot of tools that are nice to have that I don't grab every day. Now, I will tell you. Speaking of Plasmo, Night Shift has lately been doing videos where he's been doing battle damage uh, on on tanks, and he's he uses a Dremel tool in that and. It's very, very convincing battle damage, in my opinion. It's not my subject area, but I've watched his videos and and what he does and why he does it and and how he does it the way he does it. Um, I think he he comes up with a good effect, and he uses a Dremel tool a fair amount to get that effect. So, well, I, I put him on Paul Budzik's video on the topic and recommended all Paul's videos for that matter. 
mm-hmm. um, and you know I'm going to replace my Dremel with a Fordham made tool uh, at some point. I'm not going to go with another Dremel. Um, and and Paul Paul explains why in his video. So if you want to watch that, that would explain. There's good and there's better, right? Yeah. And I don't use it that much, so it's going to be a while off now. Interesting, Irwin, Tennessee, where Joel is from, is just about 15 minutes south by southwest of my hometown of Johnson City, Tennessee. And I don't know if he probably knows if he's lived there very long, but it was the corporate headquarters for the Clinchfield Railroad, which was the last Class 1 railroad built in North America. And I'm a armchair model railroader. I used to be into it a lot heavier than I am now, but this is this railroad is my personal favorite and Joel, you ought to look it up. You'll end up uh, maybe uh, becoming a model railroader. (laughs) It's a really fascinating story about how it got built and uh, just a really unique story. Um, He's also a first responder. He's a firefighter in Kingsport, Tennessee, which is one of the three cities that make up the tri cities area of East Tennessee. So again, hats off because all this craziness uh, has got everybody thinking about those people for sure. Um, and also wanted to mention that there's a model club in Johnson city, uh, the Appalachian scale modelers association. They meet, uh, at hobby town USA out on the Bristol highway and they've got a Facebook page. And if he's not currently a member of that, you ought to check it out. It's a small club, but, uh, uh, you got to start somewhere. Yep. All right. One more. All right. Of course we're doing a little, we're doing a little extra on these. So it's uh, sure beefing up the content here a little bit. Um, yeah. Ian McCauley writes again from Ottawa, Ontario. I hope this finds you both well and not too squirrely with the enforced isolation. (laughs) No kidding. I find I'm depending more and more on modeling podcasts since I can't see my modeling buddies in person. Thank you for doing such a bang up job on plastic model mojo. Well, we appreciate it. Um, I hope we're doing a bang up job. Yep. Uh, Mike, I really enjoyed your interview on On the Bench. I think that the experience you hinted at paralleled my own. And I'm going to stop there with this because that's going to segue later into our special segment. All right. Um, In addition, though, he did send some photos of his work. And if it's all right with him, I'll share those. If he could drop me another email and let me know, I'll put those on our Facebook page. He's an armor guy. Yeah, um, and any of the listeners, I'd like them, you know, the visitors can post in the visitor post area on our Facebook page, and we'd love to see what you're working on. Well, for listener mail, that's all I've got, Dave. Okay, well, uh, I've got one correction from uh, the previous episode. Uh, I killed somebody who wasn't dead, and I need to bring them back to life. Um, I don't know how I did this. I don't know why my memory failed me so. Uh, Mark Perchetti is not dead. Uh, not only is he very much alive, but he has uh, taken over the duties of head judge at uh, the IPMS Nationals. So, uh, frankly, I guess I can throw away any hope of ever, ever winning another national award because I killed him <laughs> off on the last podcast. Well, I'm sure he's glad to know he's still alive. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think he probably always knew he he was still alive. <laughs> it was everybody else that suddenly thought he was dead. Sorry about that, Mark. Mea culpa. So uh, <laughs> congratulations, you're back among the living. <laughs> Barrist- barristers can do that? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, apparently so. I can raise the dead. Not only can I model, I can raise the dead. That's pretty good. Um, there you go. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> 
Mike, we've all had extra time to be building, so I assume you finished four or five kits since our last podcast, just barely two. Oh yeah, ago. four or five. <laughs> I'm working on. I don't know. I'm not even working on that many. Um, okay. But what are you well, working on? Blarig the dwarf is base coded, but he's on hold for a little bit. We're gonna set that aside and work on some other stuff for a little bit. Um, uh, the Zist two anti tank guns getting some love again. I've been working on the highlights on that with the with the brush. That's coming along pretty nice. So um, now you, you're working on highlights with the br- with uh, airbrushing or no? Or brush um, I'm actually got the acrylic the Vallejo's out on my wet palette, and I'm blending colors and touching up all the rivet tops and you know just whatever trying yeah. to get a get a lot of variation in the green. Okay. So you're starting so, with the highlights? Yeah. I mean, it's avant-garde, right? We may get into this again later, but yes, we will. <laughs> um, it's just a, it's kind of a, a backwards approach than what I started with in my modeling life, but we're getting there. Um, I've got the, got the wheels done. I've got the front side of the shield and I've got the business end of the, the armament done and now i'm about to turn my attention to the breach side and the split trail and then once the highlighting's all done i'll start the the washing and the shadows and the the oil paint fading and all that jazz but uh trying to apply it are you gonna try chipping uh probably yes on this one i will because it's you know kind of a high use kind of weapon yeah and there's some areas that i think it'll, it'll look really good so yes, I'll be trying some chipping. Okay. Uh, I've also been cleaning up the crew figures for the Bofors and Morris tractor. Uh, the their fixed figures aren't they're, they're proportioned well scale wise for you know a human being, but the details a little soft. Uh, getting those cleaned up and painted. I actually started one. I think I sent you a picture earlier today. Yeah. Um, actually trying to apply some of the the techniques. I've learned on these fantasy figures, um, actually suggesting detail that's not there by, but just, just painting it in place. And I think maybe in a small scale, you can pull that off. I've also been poking around about trying to figure out what I want to start next. Yeah. Can, can I suggest something? I I know what I want you to start next and I'll, I'll, I'll voice my opinion, but on our Facebook page, put a poll, Okay, of your top, say three or four items, and let's oh, let like we list. used to. <laughs> yeah, like you and I used to do. D- Dave and I used to swap uh, Excel spreadsheets with our top ten, and we we would we would list our top ten potential projects and send it to the other guy, and they would rate them and see where it yeah. lined up on what what they wanted us to build versus what uh, we wanted to build. It was well, fun. Uh, Put it on the Facebook page and let's let's let the listeners vote. I could put a survey I, out there. That's that's a good I idea. Know, I know what I want to want you to build. I am I'm I'll I'll, I'll stake it here and now. I would love to see you build a Polish seven TP. Okay, well that's that's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know it's that's one actually one you're considering. Yes, it's one of the ones I'm considering. But uh, actually ordered a few bits and pieces to kind of investigate something about that build because it's not going to be an easy one, but be very interesting. Hey, 
Could it be worse than an Allen SU-76? No, it could not. No, because that was basically carving something out of soap. <laughs> I know. I saw it. <laughs> I know. I remember. So that's kind of what I've been working on. I've okay. look, looking over at the bench. Nope, that's it. It's plenty. That's right. plenty, I think. Now, I know you've posted a lot of pictures of your MIG, so let's hear yeah. it. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Mr. MIG got primed last night uh, in a late-night modeling and modeling fluid session. Um, and so I always find priming to be both uh, uplifting and depressing. Uplifting because of the fact that once you've put primer on it, you know you're headed toward the paint stage. You can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, the models all together. It looks like, at least in theory, what it's going to ultimately end up being. Um, but it's always depressing because you know, primer always reveals flaws that you didn't know were there, that uh, uh, the, the rescribing that you need to do, the... the uh, seams that you thought you had taken care of that you need a little more work. So it's, it's, it's a plus minus type thing, but it's in primer. I'll post a picture on our Facebook page. Um, I've also gone back and started uh, uh, doing some more work on the AS1. And now it's roughly in the same stage, uh, which presents me with a problem because uh, that means I don't have, a construction project right now. I've got nothing that I can sit down when I feel like sticking parts together. I've got nothing on the bench that I can just stick parts together. So I'm, I'm torn. Uh, if I start something new, I might not finish something that's currently on the bench. Uh, there's a number of things I'm considering for my next build. Uh, uh, and, uh, right now that's where I am, uh, in theory with this, uh, coronavirus quarantine, I should be able to finish a couple of projects in the next 30 days. Um, uh, I listened, you know, uh, you noted that the new on the bench dropped, uh, today, the day we're recording this. And uh, they mentioned something that I'd actually had been thinking about, which is with all these modelers quarantined and in theory building a whole lot more, what are model contests going to look like next year? Is everybody <laughs> just going to have tons get some extra tables? Well, that's what they were saying. Can they, you know, are you, are they going to be able to handle it? Um, you know, I, uh, as you well know, our club has a contest every May, and we just had to uh, cancel it um, again because of the, the current situation. Um, so it's something that we'll have to consider for next year. If, you know, God willing, we're going to be able to, everything will be fine by then. We'll be able to hold our model contest and What's our what are our tables going to look like? Are they going to be super packed with all of this stuff that people have been building <laughs> for for a, a whole year? Well, that would kind of be the phoenix rising from the ashes. Yes, that's the At least positive for scale modeling. Very negative. Yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that's speaking all. of which. Speaking of which, let me give a quick shout out. Uh, our local hobby shop, uh, Scale Reproductions. Uh, due to the quarantine, they are closed for walk-in service, but Brian is still doing uh, curbside service, so you can call him and uh, ask if he's got something in particular in stock, and then you can go to the door. He'll bring it to the door. You can complete a purchase. Um, as we all know, uh, uh, you know, running a hobby shop is is... It's like that old joke about uh, thoroughbred racing. How do you how do you make a small fortune in thoroughbred racing? You start with a large fortune. Same thing goes. Nobody <laughs> nobody is getting rich running a running a brick and mortar hobby shop. And you know they're always those guys are always operating on the on the edge. And so during this time, if you're if you've got a local hobby shop and they are still operating in some form or fashion. Try and find a way to support them because uh, we need them to stay around through this whole thing. And they're they're not hopping cars and sat in hot pants and roller skates, so you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Brian, <laughs> you know, Brian on roller skates skating out to your car. No, no, thank you. Not an image I want. Yeah, not like American graffiti. Exactly. Not at all. Well, there's been a few releases in the last couple of weeks, three weeks, month. Yeah. I don't know. You got a favorite? You got a big yawner? Have, What's your favorites? Oh, I've got a couple. Uh, my first That's favorite uh, is the uh, just announced, not yet out, but just announced, and they've released at least uh, one or two images, uh, Tacom the armor, mostly armor company, uh, announced that they were releasing a 72nd scale Yamato turret. Uh, the actually turret number two off the battleship Yamato. Um, this thing is awesome. Yeah, the, I, I, frankly, I, I was worried because they dropped the announcement on April 1st and I was sure that that had to have been an April Fool's joke. Uh, but no, it's been confirmed. Uh, this is just awesome. This is it's going to be a conversation piece. It's going to be a fun thing to build. Uh, it get it hits me right in all the sweet spots uh, and should should be of some interest to you because while it's turret number two, all the turrets on the Yamato were pretty similar. You could probably modify it to turret number three which is the the one in the back and that of course was just in front of the catapults for the Yamato and as we all know Hasegawa has released uh, over the years a couple of the float plane kits with Japanese catapults so it might make the a good basis for the beginning of a seventy uh, second scale float plane and turret diorama. Yeah, kind of a, the, a big one too. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That'll that'll that hits your sweet spot too. It could. Yeah. So, what's one of yours? Uh, it's also from Tacom, actually. All right. They've announced the Sturmgeschütz 3 Alps G, which always is going to interest me. Yeah. Um, 
luck as luck would have it, I I am slightly invested in in dragon Sturmgeschütz kits. May I have maybe three total. Yeah, and I, I'm curious to see what this one's going to be. I, I'm I don't know if it's going to be an interior kit or not. I don't know if Tacom does that. I I, I don't know, but that one's. That one's got my attention. I don't know which where in the production life their version is going to fall. That might have a little bearing on whether I'm really interested in it or just sort of interested in it. Uh, but uh, it ought to be a good kit. So I'm anxious to see when that one's released, what that one's going to look like. Good. One, I've got to remind me, I've got to email you. Uh, one of the podcasts I listen to regularly the guy did an interview. It's over in Europe. Guy did an interview with uh, a guy who was an armor restorer, and he was restoring a stug, which I thought was particularly interesting. So, knowing that, knowing yeah, please, how much, send me that. knowing how much you love the stugs, I'll I'll have to find find that for you. My next one, my next uh, uh, favorite is Clearprop, the company out of Ukraine that came out of nowhere. Uh, making really fantastic kits, uh, just announced or, or just released uh, an LA-5, a Lavochkin LA-5, which is a Russian Soviet World War II uh, single-engine fighter. Um, most of my interest in Soviet stuff is post-war. Um, uh, I'm not big into the World War II stuff, but it is an area that has been sorely neglected across all scales, really, but in 72nd scale particularly. There are a bunch of uh, World War II Russian aircraft, particularly fighters, of which there's either no kit or no good kit. And uh, given the quality of what we've seen from Clearprop so far, I have no reason to doubt their LA-5 isn't going to be top-notch. And as such, I'm happy to see it for all of the guys out there who've been dying for years uh, every time some manufacturer releases a new P-51 or Spitfire or 109, and they're just you know beside themselves because nobody's covering their area of interest. So I'm happy to see Clearprop do an LA-5 and... Uh, I know people who've ordered it. It's on the way, so I'm, I'm, I'll be interested to see when they get posted on the internet. So, what's your next one? I've got a couple. Go ahead. We got, um, we got this, time. This one, yeah, this one's a little, little out there for me. Uh, it's by Kitty Hawk, which is unfortunately gets panned a lot. It's a UH-1B Huey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dragon did a UH-1C, and I had that kit a while and sold it and regretted it. It's a hard kit to find. Yeah. So this this, this is the version prior. I, I, I'm you know, I Early think both Vietnam. both. Yeah, the Bs and the Cs are the primary Vietnam era slicks, I believe. Mm-hmm. Kind of got me thinking if it's a new one and maybe I don't know. It's interest. It interests me. Well, good. Helicopters are tough, man. I, I admire, yeah, I, know. I admire those modelers who build helicopters. One of the things that the IPMS Nationals every year I spend time looking at 
is the helicopter categories. And y'all are some wizards because that's crap. That stuff scares me, and you some of the, <laughs> some of the stuff you see, it's just it's flat amazing. It is it is great. So, uh, yeah, I, I've I, got I, I got one more. If you if you don't have another fave, uh, no, I don't have a fave. I've got a pan. So go get your fave in. Um, Mini Art has released two sets of Soviet tank riders in thirty fifth scale. I saw that. I'll, I'll probably. I'll probably grab those. Now, if I had my preference, they'd, they would have represented some earlier uniform configurations. They're they're good for post-January 43, and that limits them a little bit, but they're, they look really good. But I, I would like them to have been pre-43 with the other uniform styles. Uh, sure. I just my personal preference, but I look forward to getting those. So I, I, yeah, I will be buying those for sure. Even if okay. I don't use them for tank riders, they can be reposed and they look really nice. Well, good. Well, good. Well, my pan is there's a company called Peplats. P E P L A T Z. You take that for heartburn. Don't you? Yeah, I don't. You, you may, you know, it's a German <laughs> word for something. Uh, maybe beer napkin because they are releasing a really nice looking kits of doodles that some aeronautical engineer in 1944 scribbled on a napkin somewhere in the Hofbrau house in Munich uh, and turning them into kits and really nice kits. I'm not complaining about their quality. They, they, They appear to be very, very nice kits. And and I don't even mind some of the paper panzer stuff where, you know, there's a, a, a piece of equipment that either had full drawings on it or was a mock-up. Maybe they didn't build the prototype, but they, they mocked the thing up. But these guys are putting out stuff that's fever dream stuff. And it just... You know, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade because there's somebody out there who loves it. So, you know, I'm glad you're you're getting I'm glad you're getting your wishes filled, but it's just not for me. And when I still consider the things that are out there that that are that were made uh, and and we are in need of a kid of I just yeah, I hate to see another German doodle on a beer <laughs> napkin being produced. So how about your pan? It's also from Mini Art. Okay. It's not pigeons, is it? No, we already did that one. <laughs> They've are joined to release a set of nineteen thirties and nineteen forties auto travelers, civilians getting out of cars and unloading the boot. And you know, they got a lot of these little cars they're doing, which I'm sure they're useful, but I got to think somebody out there along with me would like to see a nice set of Hungarian infantry, <laughs> Norwegian, or, Norwegian or a set of Romanian, Romanian infantry. Yes. Or Norwegian infantry. I would kill for uh, some, some good Norwegian infantry from 1940. But, now I uh, guess yeah, if I was no. worth my, if I was worth my salt, I could convert these auto travelers into Hungarian infantry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I don't might be a bit of work. 
I take it the <laughs> I take it the Hungarians were not just using, you know, standard issue, you know, German hand-me-downs or anything like that, that they had very unique uniforms. Yes. They did. did. Yeah. And they had their own indigenous uh, designed uh, armor. Yeah. I mean, you've seen those kits, right? Um, yeah. You know, a lot of their, a lot of their aircraft were, were German. Yeah. Almost all of them probably. Yeah. But, uh, and they had some German tanks as well, but no, they're, they're their uniforms were very unique. They still carried over a lot of uh, details from the uh, Austri- Austria-Hungary time mm-hmm. period. Uh, very unique. Um, even I'd go as far as as to say, if you really get into the details of them, they 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 have some of the last trappings of the Napoleonic era in them, even. Hmm. So very regal. Yeah. Very unique uniforms. And- and nobody makes them. Uh, there's a few resin, uh, some resin kits out there. I can't think of the name. Uh, I think our friends at SBS in Hungary uh, distribute. Well, that would make sense. Body, body or Bodhi, B-O-D-I. They've got some Hungarian figures. Really nice, but you know, a nice set of plastic figures would would be welcome. I think. Sure, sure. I agree. So, our special segment tonight involves the evolution of modeling techniques and styles. So, why or why are we talking about this subject? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've, I've mentioned in a couple of podcast interviews and back yeah. to Ian McCauley's uh, email. Um, I'm going to pick up where I left off. Okay. Let's see. Well, let me back up a little bit. I think that the experience you hinted at paralleled my own. I too build my armor kits quite happily until the newly minted experts came out and told me I was doing everything wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, quote, you have to paint and weather your model this way or else you're behind the times and your model is crap. Unquote was almost the end of modeling for me as it became self-conscious and modeling stopped being fun. Yeah. That is exactly where I was in 2002. It's amazing how, well, I'm aircraft had a very unique, um, evolution of finishing and appearance and all of that. And I know armor did as well. And I think they somewhat parallel each other, but not exactly. So why don't you talk about the the evolution that armor and armor modeling and armor finishing went through over time and where we are? Well, back when I got started in all this, and I've got two books in front of me. I've got Shepard Payne's Modeling Tanks and Military Vehicles, and I've got oh, Shepard yeah. Payne's How to Build Dioramas. A great and book I could probably, I could probably reach over on my shelf and pull out a couple of Verlinden Way volumes. Yeah. And to not go too much into this, but the the focus was on the build primarily, and the the finish was basically you paint the thing, you apply a wash, and you dry brush, 
And some folks did a few other things, some a little mud and stuff every now and then, but that was pretty much the formula. And the the degree that that could be pulled off and made to look good, considering that was what good was at the time, uh, there was, you know, there's quite a spectrum of, you know, you get too heavy handed with a dry brush, your model starts to look a little crazy. Um, but that, that was just the way you did it and didn't really think about it too much. And then, um, I guess in the nineties in, in the United States, the, the, the person we saw starting to do some of this new stuff was actually, I think for, for me anyway, was Chris Morosco. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I think because he, he had a lot of friendships with, with modelers outside the United States um, speculating and he was seeing some of this and maybe he was pioneering some of this stuff too. I don't know. I've got one of his books as well where he starts, uh, he's doing some of the, the chipping. Right. And it's kind of the first time many folks had seen that. And about the same time, Miguel Jimenez kind of emerges out of Spain and there's a whole cadre of modelers kind of around that whole Spanish Spanish school, I guess is what everybody calls it. And yeah. uh, really, well, to back up a second, some of these guys were are classically trained artists. I think MIG is. I think he went to art yeah. school. And they're, they're applying a lot of techniques and using a lot of terminology that was foreign to most scale modelers at the time. Not so much now, but because you know they've they've propagated this thing so so well, and really really changed the the amount of focus that the actual finish and realism to some degree. Though we can talk a little bit about what's realistic and what's not, um, but regardless, it it was a real paradigm shift to borrow a horrible corporate buzzword, uh, <laughs> but that's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's a better example of that phrase than anything I ever saw working in corporate America. That's for sure. I mean, (laughs) it really, it really turned things on its head. So, um, from the armor side, that's, that's what happened. What about aircraft? Aircraft kind of paralleled that, but had some, had some differences as well. Back when, I got back into modeling in the early 80s. There was an attitude. Everybody built their kits, painted them, and did not weather them at all. It was rare to see any sort of weathering other than maybe the occasional exhaust stain. And even those were were rare. Uh, the attitude among aircraft modelers was if he weathered his model, he must be doing it to hide something. <laughs> they were very, uh, seriously. And as we all know, I believe you. Weathering actually accentuates any, any flaw in your model. It doesn't hide it with the exception of maybe covering ar- some armor stuff with thick mud. But the attitude really was you built a clean, version of the aircraft uh, and and you put it on the table and it was not necessarily as if it rolled out the factory door, but pretty close. Uh, 
and there was a, a prejudice against weathering. Then along comes uh, Francois Verlinden, uh, releases the Verlinden Way books and does one for aircraft, and starts to take some of the armor weathering techniques and apply them to aircraft. And does so very, uh, very beautifully and, and uh, uh, makes beautiful models, has weathering that's very pleasing to the eye, uses washes and dry brushing, the things that you referred to in armor. And that weathering then became acceptable, if not favored, but at least not disqualifying. Um, then from, you know, from that, Verlinden ruled through the 90s. And then as we get into the 2000s, the Spanish school, what we call the uh, shorthand is the Spanish school, but uh, uh, some people, you know, the high contrast where they, again, using artistic techniques from artists, take a model and very high contrasts in order to make a small object appear uh, more fully three-dimensional. Um, uh, it's it's a style like a painting style, like a uh, a particular artist, uh, Rembrandt or a Jackson Pollock or whoever has a particular style. The Spanish school is a particular style, um, and the, the there's versions of it from somewhat muted to very very high contrasty. Um, and every variation in between, but there are, there's a lot of good coming out of it, uh, even if you don't particularly like that style. And that is, as much as anything, it is a personal choice, a personal, you know, uh, I like this style, or so. it doesn't have to do with was the model constructed well or painted well. It's more of the appearance is in a style that is pleasing to some people and not others. Um, even if you don't like everything that you see from high contrast, uh, um, there's lots of stuff they do that you can take out and use, even if you don't want to do everything. Uh, some of the finest uh, uh, aircraft modeling books, in my opinion, are the ones that Diego, uh, I think it's, Quignano, I'm not sure ex exactly how you pronounce his last name. He did a series of five books on aircraft modeling. Um, and they are five of my prized references. They are just really great. You learn something new on every page. Now, you may not apply that particular technique, uh, but you, you know, or you may choose to, or you may choose not to, it may be pleasing to you, but it is all very good technique. Um, then subsequent to that, we're now starting to see what's called, again, it's all finishings. Basic construction hasn't, hasn't really seen any big revolutions other than the revolutions that came along back with the, um, with uh, Verlinden and, you know, resin update sets and, and 
some of that stuff. But uh, there's just know, so it, many, so many more kits now. Yes. I mean, and better engineers. So much resin, so much aftermarket, so much scratch building has been sidelined. Yes. By just the stinking cascade waterfall of, of kits we've gotten over the last uh, almost 20 years now. But, um, and in my, in my opinion, in my opinion, it's easier for a modeler who starts from zero today to become a good modeler because the modern kits we're seeing may be a little bit more complex, but they are much better engineered. So some of the, some of the challenges that faced the modeler in construction no longer exist generally with modern kits. Um, it's much easier to get a good seam or a good fit. Uh, but uh, but the finishing techniques have really evolved over time. I was going to say for, for me personally, on the, I hinted at it earlier, uh, on the armor side, what made it so difficult and created such these mental roadblocks, and now I, I admit I'm an engineer, I tend to overthink and I tend to not proceed until I've thought things through and I was a slow builder anyway. So I was just getting left in the dust, right? <laughs> Completely fell off the wagon. But the, the big thing I could, I struggled to get my head around was when, when you're, when you're using the techniques that Shep Payne and Francois Verlinden kind of pioneered, you start with the, the, the basic color, of your model. Now I'm going to, I'm talking monochromatic. You could apply it to a camouflage vehicle as well, but for just for simplicity, a monochromatic finish, a Russian green or a, or Panzer gray or an American olive drab or a British bronze, whatever. Um, you'd start dark. In fact, I had pre-mixed Panzer gray. That was like probably if you think the Tamiya German gray, it was, it was 50% Tamiya German gray and 50% flat black. That is the color I started with on the model everywhere. Yeah. And my, my kind of style at the time was I would earth tone the bottom. I didn't put a lot of mud on models, but I had a, a dark earth and flat black mixture that I spread everything below the fenders with. And from that, aside from the wash, the dry brushing, as you would ramp up the lightness of the colors and back off on the, the, the heavy handedness of the brush stroke, um, it would lighten the thing up as you went. Now with these new techniques, it's the complete opposite. You're starting off with a, a very extremely highlighted model. I mean, almost garish, uh, you know, I made a garish highlight comment on Facebook last week when I was painting the wheels on the little anti tank gun I'm working on. And, you just have to trust I, when you start dark and go light with experience, you, you know, you can manage that. But when that's the way you've thought about it for half your modeling life, coming back the other way, you're like, <laughs> first off, you gotta, you gotta bite the bullet and put these garish highlights on the model and trust that these other steps are going to back it down and you're going to, you're going to get to a happy place again. And that's been the biggest the biggest challenge for me and the, the PT I built started that. And now I'm applying these again on this, just to any tank gun. And I'm, I'm really trying to, to make those highlights a little more heavy in the contrast and, and see where it goes from there. And 
I tell you, I'm still not comfortable with it. I'm, I'm more comfortable than I was, but it's, it's still not an automatic kind of thing like it used to be. Yeah. Well, with aircraft, it's something slightly different, but the same, that same leap. Uh, it used to be when you painted an aircraft, you covered the aircraft with the color that you were painting it. Okay. That there was, oh, you know, light gray on the bottom and OD on the, or medium gray on the bottom and OD on the top. That was it. And you were going for coverage. You wanted to make sure that nothing showed through, that you were just simply going for coverage. Then you go to, well, some techniques that uh, Marty Sanford and some other guys, again, in the or for Linden in the 90s, uh, where using your airbrush, you would highlight panel edges or darken panel edges to add depth to particular panels. And you might actually mask off some panels and paint them a slightly different shade of the, of the base color so that you get a couple of panels that pop out. Well, now it's progressed to the point where you're, you're not going for opacity, but you're going for layers where, you know, if, if you may, and it almost doesn't matter in aircraft modeling where you start. You could start with the light color, the dark color, or the base color. But what you're doing is you're not going for coverage. You're going and laying down thin coats that in spots you can see through and, and you know, using the underlying primer, especially if you're black basing to add depth. Then you're coming in with lightened colors Again, very, very thin down so that you're misting them into the center of panels or, or using them as highlights. Instead of laying down coverage coats, it's, it's much more a series of, series of layers and a series of, um, uh, of variations of, of the base color that you're working with. Again, just talking monochromatic uh, camouflage adds even more variations because you obviously have to do variations of all the colors, uh, lighter, darker, etc. But it it really is, it really was for me hard to wrap my mind around not trying, applying paint and not trying to actually cover everything and then going back and using paint that is so thin that it is not really a coverage coat it's it's going to lighten almost like a dry brushed highlight but it's airbrushed you know uh, or darken as the case may be if you're applying a shadow that original color but you're doing it through a thin semi-opaque layer and uh, it's been a real challenge. There are guys out there who can do this stuff uh, so much more, so much better. I'll tell you one thing that uh, this has resulted in is that it used to be again, before there was weathering and when everybody was painting things for coverage and there was no panel variation or any of that, Judging models was you walk along, you look at everything, and 
the opinion of the finish was, okay, does he have dust in his finish or is it even or does he have orange peeling? And you looked at the construction of the model. Now, because modelers are expressing themselves so much more through the finish, there are actual styles like artistic styles. And so therefore, you can look at a model and like it or not like it, not based on its construction or how the paint finish is on the model. In other words, the quality of the, of the paint applied, but I like that. It's not, or I don't like that. It's too contrasty. It's not contrasty enough. I like the weathering. I don't like the weathering, etc. It finishes have become so much more varied and so much more important in modeling, I think. Is there anyone in particular in the aircraft genre that uh, you particularly admire well, and would like, like I, to emulate? Well, I don't know if I'd like to emulate. Uh, a lot of, again, those books by Diego Quijano, just beautiful stuff. Gorgeous stuff, undeniably a beautifully built model, a beautifully finished model. Some of them are too high contrasty for my taste. And again, that is, it's, again, so much more a matter of style and taste now. Um, There are a lot of good modelers out there. Uh, uh, I admire the way... Uh, Diego does his stuff, even if I don't want to make every one of my models that high contrast, I would like to take some of what he is doing and apply it. Um, By the same token, I can still appreciate a modeler like uh, um, a guy named Mike Grant out of Canada. Uh, And Mike doesn't, really do any weathering at all he he just finishes his mod- models beautifully there um in he specializes in building older models and and makes them look like modern kits and has such beautifully clean finishes that you you can't help but admire them i'm trying still i think i'm i'm still groping to find what what style I like. I would like some contrast and some weathering and using some of these artistic techniques, even if I don't want to use them all or make them soup, make my models super high contrast. How about you? Well, for someone I admire, I think Michael Rinaldi in the armor sphere is uh, absolutely my favorite. And, you know, he's done the tank art, series of books and in fact yeah. he was they've got first part of his interview on uh, scale model podcast was in their last episode and i liked listening to that and the, the second part's coming up but you know he's another trained guy if i'm not mistaken i have to go back and listen to a little bit of that again but I, I i'm pretty sure he's from an art background he uses a lot of pigments for the you know the undercarriage type weathering in his models which I like the look of when it's done, but I don't like the robustness of it on the model. And I have, tr- I have trouble working with pigments. That's one thing I don't enjoy too much, but the oil paint work he does, the, the chipping he does and the way he does everything. And he's really big on making sure his effects are, are 
scale effects and they're not overdone or too heavy handed. And I think his, his work is absolutely beautiful. And I think he's, he's the, he's the high bar right now. And there's some things, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, some of this modulation style is, is something I, a lot of it's, I don't say a lot of it, but you, you see models some point and they're using a, what's it called? The Zenithal lighting. If I'm saying that oh, correctly, yeah. where, where you're, you're, you're shading and highlighting the model as if the light source is coming from a specific point in a specific direction. And that works until you flip the model around 180 degrees and it's, it's, it's highlighted opposite of the room lighting. You're looking at the model under, it doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. Um, I don't like that at all. And I, and I think sometimes with that style, you get a model that when you're looking at it, a photograph of it online, it almost looks like a 2d CAD rendering, you know, well, a, a 2d image that's been 3d rendered like in CAD. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so stark that it, 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 it's hard to explain. Um, it, it, it doesn't look like a 3d object anymore. It looks like a, a rendered 3d object. That's actually two dimensional. Yeah. Where do you come so, down? It's so overdone. Go ahead. Where do you come down on chipping? Yeah. You know, I've not done a lot of it. Um, I've, I've experimented with it. I'm, I'm trying to find a, a degree of it. I like, but where, <laughs> It, am I playing around with it? My problem is when I get it to where I think it's in scale and pleasing to the eye, I'm under a two X optimizer. And when I take the damn thing off, you can hardly see any of it. Yeah. Well, so you, maybe that argues that it should be more restrained. It seems like, and now keep in mind, I'm an aircraft modeler. Shipping is not really, although it's coming in a little bit on, on, some models it's not as big a deal for us but it seems like in armor it burst onto the scene x number of years ago 10 15 whatever it was and now is just everywhere in ever greater proportion and back to your comment you know maybe the the proper effect is when you do it under a an opt 2d opt or 2x optimizer and then take it away and it's still there but it seems like it's mostly disappeared to you maybe that is the proper uh, uh the the, so proper all, the young, all the young guys at the show can see it but no one nobody else <laughs> yeah, well there, there is that too yeah so yeah, i think it sucks, it sucks getting old. for both of us we both kind of hinted at it and you know ian Macaulay here actually hints at it too is this he's he's keeping some of his old techniques that have always worked for him and using some of these techniques he finds worthwhile and coming up with uh what satisfies him and i think when the rubber hits the road you got to find something you're happy with and it may not be using all these nouveau kind of things and maybe keeping yeah. some of the old and you know doing yeah. it for yourself now if you're doing if you're doing the contest thing and that gets a little challenging to just do it for yourself sometimes but you know everybody wants a nice looking model yeah no i i agree now, ultimately the the hobby is about pleasing yourself even if you do want to 
to, you know, compete and, and take your model to contests and, and have other people like it and comment on it. Ultimately, if you're building to please somebody else, uh, it just, it doesn't, ultimately, yeah, I, get, I don't think that's going to make you happy. Yeah, it gets, gets tough real quick. Yeah, I agree. Well, we're getting late here. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so tell me, who, who do you want to, who's your shout outs for uh, this episode? Uh, well, given the current situation, I'm going to shout out to all the first responders that are listening to us who come to us through this, the scale model hobby, but they're police officers or firefighters or emergency medical services folks or dispatchers or coordinators. Uh, you know, just thank you because, you know, I hope this pandemic doesn't touch your particular neck of the woods too severely. Uh, cause it's not like all this other crap stops until this is over. There's still car wrecks. People's houses are still catching on fire and people are still getting sick by other things. And there's still crime. This is really going to tax a lot of people and it's hard to imagine. I mean, it's a selfless kind of, yep. kind of job to be in. So hope everybody's careful and I want to just give them a shout out and hopefully can come back to the bench after a shift and unwind from some of this madness going on right now. Yeah. Well, and to that point, and uh, p other people to shout out that normally are the people that nobody sees or thinks about the, the folks at the grocery store that are busting butt to restock shelves, the truckers who are getting product where it needs to go. Uh, people who are kind of invisible in our economy, but it wouldn't function if they didn't exist. That's absolutely they correct. They weren't out there doing it every day. And now suddenly we finally realize what value these people add to our society. And they don't get, they're doing jobs that are, are not necessarily highly compensated, don't have the best hours, um, you know, Back great backbreaking work, uh, but if it wasn't for them, uh, our society doesn't function. And hopefully, when this pandemic is over, we don't forget that. We don't forget that it's 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 not uh, you know it's it's not Hollywood stars or or anything else that are vital to our economy, but what is vital to our economy and to our survival is the trucker, the stalker, the, the folks who are that, and have to be out there. Their job requires them to continue to go to work so that the rest of us can shelter in place. So hopefully, hopefully this doesn't go too much longer. I got a feeling it's going to go longer than any of us want it to. Yep. Yep. Just hope everybody keeps their wits about them. It's going to get tough. Yep. But hopefully modeling can make that a uh, little better for those of us who engage in the hobby. Well, we've gone a little longer than we normally go. So I guess we need to wrap this up, Dave. You got it. So many kits. So little time. Right? You take care. All right. Good night until next time. You got it. <laughs>